0: So if you know about the hippie movement, Summer of Love, this is like a play, a visual play on words there. And I have to tell you something. I was talking to Evan and a couple others from downtown last week, and I was like, oh man, that sermon series, uh, Instruments for Change, that was really good. And he's like, don't you mean Ingredients for Change? Or vice versa, I don't even know today, I don't even know. And I was like, wow, as one of the pastors in the church, I feel like I should know the, the titles of our sermon series. And you know why I'm telling you this? It's because it's a good anecdote to say, I say dumb things, and I need the Holy Spirit to speak through me to say something that makes any sense or is life-changing in any way. So I'm going to pray again, just to ask that God would speak through me, work through me, despite, despite of me, basically. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your love uh, for us today. And I pray if anyone came in here uh, just unsure of your love, unsure of their place before you, God. I pray, pray that your word would reveal uh, just that to us, a better understanding of your love. Uh, God, I pray that um, you would remove distractions um, just from each of our minds as we're engaging with this text, and uh, you just allow us to fully focus on, on what you're saying and not what our mind is saying in response, not what the world is saying in response, but what are you saying through this text? I pray, God, above all, that you would uh, you would use me uh, you would keep me from saying anything that's not from you or of you. Uh, and I pray that, above all, your name would be glorified today uh, in this in this time. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I was nine years old, uh, I remember going to a county fair with my brother, my parents, and my grandparents. And why am I telling you a story about when I was nine years old? It's because I put in, like, this filter into my brain where it was like, think of some sort of story that fits the story of Job, but then one of the criteria was, I don't actually want to talk about suffering and loss and trials that you might have experienced or that I might have experienced in my life because I feel it would be a form of tokenism. So my brain's like, I've got just the perfect story for you uh, and this is it. Nine-year-old me at the county fair in a box, uh, box car or bumper car type of like ride, okay? And Evan wasn't big enough to control the bumper cars yet, so you can advance the slide if you have it working. Okay, you don't have it working. I have pictures, because I asked my mom for details, and and she's like, I think actually more than details, I have pictures that I can send you. So if those ever come in, we'll show them to you. But basically, I'm in the bumper car, and for the entire ride, I'm just sitting there, not knowing how to operate the bumper car. And I don't know, like, in case any of you don't know, I'll help you. You just have to turn the steering wheel all the way to the right, and that will engage full throttle, and then you steer. But you, you can't let go of the steering wheel, or else you'll, it'll just stop moving. So I was sitting there the whole time, I'm like, where are the pedals? Like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Evan's sitting there like, come on, man, like, let's get this thing moving. And we're getting bumped in from side to side. And after that, after walking off that ride, I felt like it was the end of the world. Nine-year-old Trenton felt like it was the end of the world. And above everything else, I was like, how, how am I going to get another $2 to try another ride? Like, I wasted those $2. Where am I going to ever find more money to be able to, to try again or, or just to reconcile this day? I've lost everything. And my papa, who was there with me, he, he, I sat down with him. I was, I was upset, like I was in tears. And he, he comforted me. And he's like, you know, Trenton, Bumper cars were just a bonus of today. Like, we didn't go to the fair today saying, we're going for bumper cars. Today was the whole day. The whole day was time with, uh, with grandparents, time with your mom and dad, time with your family at the fair. And so, in reality, while this was a bad experience, didn't go as you hoped, you, you didn't lose what was most valuable to you. And I was like, "Wow!" That, like, thinking back on that, that it was my mom that helped bring all those little details together. And like, I'm sure it was somewhat. The gist of it is true. I'm not sure how perfect my grandpa spoke in the moment, but it leads me to ask you the question: If if someone asked you today, what is the most valuable thing in your life? How would you answer that? If, what is the most valuable thing in your life? Now, it's at this point that I want to introduce this book a little bit better. Uh, basically, we're going to spend eight weeks in the book of Job. I have memorized the, the title of the sermon series, Summer of Loss, so I'm good to go with that. Uh, basically, the book of Job is in the wisdom literature of the Bible. And the thing that's a little bit different about it is because you could go to Proverbs and be like, I have this situation, what's the answer to this? Book of Job, not a question and answer type of book. You're going to go into the book of Job, and you're going to be reading. You're going to be like, hmm, hmm, this is interesting. I've got a ton more questions now. And so it's a lot like the, the series Lost. Has anyone ever watched the, the show Lost? Okay, we have just one person out of everyone. Okay, <laughs> But I thought about that in advance. I was like, Lost is the type of show where you watch it, and you're like, maybe they're going to answer the questions I have because of last week's episode, and then the next episode comes, and it doesn't answer any of those questions, and it leaves you with more questions. And then I was like, what about the people that didn't watch Lost? Because I'm getting to be like old, and people are younger than me, and they maybe didn't see Lost. And it still serves its purpose as an illustration, because you're like, what's this show Lost? I have questions about Lost now, and that's what Job is like. You're going to read the book, and you're going to be like, I've got more questions than when I started. And so the reality of Job is that it asks the questions, and then it answers the question. And so the question is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Is God wise and just in the midst of suffering? Is God wise and just in the midst of suffering? And God will answer this question through Job's suffering and Job's response to suffering. And so, we're going to spend eight weeks to engage with this. And so, I won't get into the details right now and like give away the, the surprise. You know, got to keep this note, got to keep the tension. But just another couple points on introducing this book the date uh, that it was written, the exact place. Like, you can, t- you can go into scripture, and scholars have made an educated guess about where us is. Uh, but the exact place, the author, those three things are all unknown. And so, the important thing. To take note of is that christian scholars view job as a historical character someone that really lived on the earth and these things that we read about him are really true uh but they uh because there's other places in scripture that reference him alongside other historical characters that are listed in scripture so we look at him as being uh like really someone who lived uh, and there's also no clear reason to view the book of job as fiction for instance, it doesn't start with, once upon a time in the land of Uz, there was a man named Job. You'd be like, huh, this seems like a, fa- uh, like a fairy tale. Uh, am I reading a fairy tale? And so the Bible has like, ways, uh, the books are written in different ways so that you know what book you're reading. You're like, oh, I'm reading something that's a story, or I'm reading something that's history. So Job is presented as fact, as history. And so the main point about all of these things being ambiguous, like we don't know the date, we don't know the author, we don't know the, really the place, is that those things aren't the point of the book all right don't get distracted with things that aren't important the topic of the book is enough for you to focus on in itself is god wise and just in the midst of suffering and then the last acknowledgement is that this book is really really well written and i'm not someone that's like breaking apart the grammatical structure of sentences and being like oh that's a perfect sentence uh, but there's other people that love doing that. And so in studying for uh, preaching today, I was like, I can I can celebrate that this book is really well, well written, even if I'm not the one that's like seeking that out in my everyday life. But it is beautiful poetry. And the thing to take note of is like, if Job wrote the book of Job, he probably didn't write beautiful poetry in his daily journal or diary while he's like scratching pus out of his arms. So we have to take note that this book is probably written way after the fact, and whoever wrote the book had the gist of what happened, and then it, through the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have something that is accurate and Holy Spirit-led to then apply to every believer's life, uh, and especially in answering the question, is God wise and just in the midst of suffering? So now, let's look at Job. Uh, if Do you have the, the slides working? No? Okay. Uh, so, we want to introduce you to Job. We're going to look at his character, his wealth, and his family. That's Job 1, 1 to 5. Did you say yes about the slides? Okay, show them the pictures of us at the fair, Evan. Oh, you didn't put those in? Okay. Let's see. No. Okay, well, forget about the slides. Well, this is this is the thing. You're like, now now it connects back to the book of Job. You're like, I've got all these questions about the slides Trenton made, and why did he make slides? We never have slides. And, you know, that's how it is with Job, questions. Uh, Okay, so Job 1, 1 to 5, we're going to get to know about Job's character. Let me just read to you from the the passage. Job Job was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. Now, who was with us when we went through the book of Proverbs? Just a couple, I don't know, months or years ago, sometime in the last while. (laughs) Okay, a couple of hands. So Job is blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. So all you need to know about Job's character, and especially it sitting in the book, uh, the wisdom literature of Scripture, is that Job perfectly meets the requirements of being wise according to Proverbs. Job is a wise guy. He has basically perfect character. Proverbs uh, that references some of these points that just have been described here is uh, Proverbs 3, 7, 14, 16, and 16, 6. Those are all things that describe uh, a wise person, having fear of the Lord is the beginning of uh, knowledge. And Job is described as being this person. Really good character, wise. Uh, the next thing I want to look at is his family. They were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Now, pause, all right? Because I don't know if you have been engaging with the book of Job very much or, or even today, but I was like, I've got a problem with the book of Job already. And it's that we just finished preaching through Revelation and numbers like seven and three are really symbolic numbers in the Bible. And then I'm like, well, we're agreeing that Job is a historical character, so what are these numbers about? And, and the, my best understanding, and, and you can uh, engage with this as well, my best understanding is that the book of Job is written with the gist of what happened and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the I believe that Job is a historical character, but that he maybe didn't have exactly seven sons and three daughters. And these might be symbolic numbers to basically say he had a perfect family. Seven, three, and then seven and three added together, ten. Those three numbers all mean completion and perfection in the Bible. And so what I believe, and another thing is that he had seven sons first, and then the time, the general time the book was written We know that it was very important for patriarchs to have sons so they could pass on their heritage. So what this is saying here is that Job had perfect character and Job had a perfect family. Okay, and I believe it's Holy Spirit inspired through these numbers to say that, like, people would read this book uh, in the day uh, that that it was written and be like, whoa, Job had a perfect family, seven sons and three daughters. And so then we look at his wealth. And that's why I wanted to gauge with these numbers right away because, again, we're going to see them, where he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel. So those, again, are numbers of completion. So basically, he had the perfect number of livestock. Uh, and then he had an enormous number of uh, yoke of oxen, female donkeys. And I'll just explain really briefly what, what are yoke of oxen uh, used for. Does anyone know? They're used for plowing. It's like Job had like 150 John Deere tractors and you'd be like that's a lot of tractors and you and the reality is like if he needed that many yoke of oxen he must have had a lot of land so that's just the note to take from that job had an enormous amount of land that he was cultivating and the female donkeys this is just an interesting like fact it really has nothing to do with the sermon but female donkeys are like more valuable than male donkeys because uh they you can breed them uh they actually do what you want them to do and male donkeys are just completely useless so it's just a way of saying job had enough money to buy the useful donkeys and not the useless donkeys Uh, and so then all of that put together brings us to a conclusion and it says it right in scripture job was the wealthiest man in the in the area i believe that he was probably the wealthiest man in his whole lifetime Uh, but the point of looking at these things in detail is because If we're taking that this is a Holy Spirit-inspired text, along with the gist of what happened in Job's life, I believe that we've already been uh, revealed the entire theme of the book. And the theme of the book is to let us know that God is really in control of everything. God is over everything, and that's going to help us understand how God is wise and just in the midst of uh, of suffering. Uh, And so, at this point, we've seen that Job has perfect character according to Scripture. Uh, that he has a perfect family, he has like the perfect amount of livestock, and, and all of that leads me to understand that what this, these first three verses of Job are saying, Job could only have those perfect amounts if God had given it to him in a perfect way. And so already at Job 3, we're being uh, confronted with the idea that God made everything, God owns everything, and God has ultimate authority over everything. Uh, and so I have a couple verses to share with you. Psalm 5010. Uh, Do we have the slide for that? Okay, you can put the slide Psalm 5010, and I'm going to read it out for you. Uh, God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And then Psalm 10424 says, "O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your Creatures. God owns everything. He made everything. He has authority over everything. Uh, and one last verse in Acts 17 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all to mankind, life and breath and everything. All right, we're at Job 1.3. And are you tracking with me? I believe that we're, we've been revealed uh, through this passage and under other places in the scriptures that God has authority over everything. What does that mean? God controls how bright every star is shining. God controls the rotation and the orbit of every planet while at the same time he's forming cells in a mother's womb. And he controls the movement of every atom, And it's at this point that we should be engaging with the text and we should be in awe. We should be in awe, thinking to ourselves, if God is really in authority, really has this much power over everything that's going on in the world, my only appropriate response is to bow down and worship him. We're in Job 1.3. And this is what we're engaging with. But the, the important thing to note is that simultaneously, you should have a thought that comes into the back of your mind, whatever thoughts come into your bra- into your brain, uh, you should have a thought. But bad things happen. Bad things happen, and the world is full of suffering. And it's at this moment that we have been given the full theme of the book. How can there be suffering while at the same time God's in control of everything? How can God then be wise and just? And now if you're here today, and you're just exploring what the Bible teaches about God, you're exploring uh, what the Bible says about Jesus. I just want to thank you for engaging with the text. This is a really hard text to engage with. It's going gonna, it's gonna to say a lot of things that don't really sit well with us. And there's going to be this tension that's going to carry through for all eight weeks. And I'm going to try to relieve a little bit of tension today, but I can't fully because we're going to just have to get into it as we go through these different chapters that we have set for this sermon series. Uh, and so what I want to point us at today is that this passage, Job 1, is going to point us towards looking at what Job valued, above all else, and then his response to, to loss, his response to suffering. And, and then the last thing I just want to point out is that we can't skip over Job 1:5, especially on Father's Day. I know that there, we don't have as many fathers in our downtown congregation, so I'm not pointing you out. It was, it's just something we need to take note of, fathers. That Job took his responsibility as family priest very seriously. He was offering sacrifices on behalf of his family. And if you read the text, it was basically in case they sinned, which you can infer that through their life and actions, they were living in, a, in an honorable way. And that he says, I don't know, maybe in their hearts they curse God. So in case they sin, I'm going to go above and beyond and offer sacrifices uh, so they can be in a right standing before their creator. And And the important thing to take note of is that Job had so much wealth. My family, we are middle class living off of one salary, and we still have enough money to pay people to do things for us. And that's the reality we live in. The more money you have, the more you pay people to do things for you and the less you do for yourself. And so Job, we see that... Like to have that many yoke of oxen, he had many servants uh, taking care of his fields, taking care of his livestock, taking care of these massive feasts that would be put on for his kids, but something that he didn't delegate to other people, something that he didn't pay other people to do was to take care of his family and and their and their sitch, their place before their creator he, uh job did not delegate the care of the souls of his children to anyone else, and so dad's Do you take your relationship with God seriously? And do you take your children's relationship with God seriously? Our application of today is that we fight for children. We fight and pray that they would be rescued and restored before their creator. And this is not something that we can delegate to someone else. This is not something that I can be like, Hey, Dwight, you're our lead pastor. Can you pray for my family and my kids? This is my responsibility in my home to pray for my children. And so Job... 1.5 One, five is an invitation to all fathers to rise early in the morning and pray for their children. Pray that their children would be in a right standing before their creator. And that's your Father's Day gift. Okay, dads? That's what you get today. Job had a lot of things. He had a lot of wealth. And an important thing to take note of is that nowhere does all this wealth, it's not presented as being bad. Actually, the most logical conclusion is that the stronger character you have, the more God is going to delegate of his resources for you to manage. So it's not a bad thing to have wealth. It's not what Job was seeking from what we can understand. But this passage doesn't even bother about what you have or what you don't have. It's looking at what do you value amongst the things that you have, amongst your possessions or the things that you uh, hold close to your heart. And so as this continues, this passage, we're going to really see what Job valued above all else. And so the next point that we have for today is an invitation to eavesdrop. And you can advance the slide um, just so you see something like that. An invitation to eavesdrop. This is a conversation between God and the Satan, or known as the accuser. Uh, and this is Job 1, 6 through 12. And I just want to ask, have any of you ever tried to eavesdrop? And it's, there's this caricature <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> oh, man. Jordan's just like, yes. <laughs> uh, there's this character of someone, like, taking a glass and, like, holding it up to a door and trying to l- – have you ever tried to do that? No. I didn't think you had. And and you. Wa- I want to tell you something. In all respect, our more seasoned uh, congregation members in the West Island, they said yes. They had used a cup – to listen through a door. And the reason I believe that that is the case is because doors used to be made out of wood. Today, my door has like this much wood and this much empty air, and you don't need a cup to eavesdrop through the doors in my house. And that's, I believe that's why no one raised their hand. You don't, you don't need any tool to eavesdrop. You can just hear everything that's going on in your apartment or your house. And anyways, today we have an invitation to eavesdrop. It's okay. Uh, We get to hear about what's going on behind the scenes. And Job, he's not privy to this. He doesn't get to know what's going on behind the scenes. And if it is Job that wrote the book of Job, it's the Holy Spirit revealing this much after the fact to him as he writes it down. And so there's this heavenly court scene between God and the accuser, uh, Satan. There's three things that we want to take note of uh, during this heavenly court scene. First is just as we read uh, verse 6, Uh, I'll just read that to you, actually, right now. Uh, You can read it with me. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. All right. The first point is that Satan is not crashing this party. Okay? Satan has to present himself before God. The first point, uh, just in this, this part of the passage, is that God is in authority over everything, and that includes Satan. Satan doesn't just get to show up at a heavenly court meeting when he wants to. God called the meeting. Satan has to present himself. The next thing is that scholars theorize. Now, this is just, I'm not saying that this is fact, okay? Scholars theorize that Satan's role in these heavenly court meetings was making accusations uh, against humans. And that would kind of work because of his name. The Satan means the accuser. He shows up and he's like, did you know that so-and-so did this? Or this person sinned against you in this way? And I I believe the whole point of that would be like, they're mine. They're mine. These people are mine. And he shows up there. He starts accusing people. And the second point in these couple verses is that Satan does not bring up the topic of discussion. God, in his authority, leads in what they were going to discuss. God brings up Job. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So, the next point you need to know is that even if his role, uh, Satan as the accuser, was to accuse people, he didn't even get to do that. Under God's authority, God brings up the topic of discussion. And then the last point in this section is that in response to God, Satan makes a non committal accusation in the form of a question. All right? If you want to be really manipulative, take note of that. Non-committal accusation in the form of a question. Uh, that way you don't have to own it, you know? So he says, does Job really fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Uh, say what he, if he were to like own up to this accusation, he would just say it outright. Like the only reason Job worships you is because you've given him everything and you protect him from any harm. But Satan, he'll always ask questions and try to sow doubt, and so he's not ma- he's not owning up to that accusation he's asking the question re- in reality, do people just worship God for what they can get from God? Do people just worship God for what for what they can get from God and what's interesting is that making accusations like this all boil down to one general topic and I think that that we can go into the three dialogues we have with Satan in the scripture and just skim over those and come to a conclusion that Satan only really has one tactic. And so you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to paraphrase. Genesis uh, 3, 1 through 5, Adam and Eve are being tempted in the garden. And what Satan essentially says is, does God really love you? Does God really love you? Because if he loved you, he wouldn't like deprive you from having access to everything in the garden you know like i actually care about you i'm your buddy and let me like tell you what it would be like if if you had access to everything uh so he questions love does god really love you cuz if he did and then you fill in the blank and then the second uh dialogue we have with satan is our passage for today job 1 uh 9 uh, 9 through 11 specifically where satan accuses god uh and accuses job and he what he's saying is Does Job really love you? Does Job really love you? Because if he really loved you, you could take away everything and he'd still worship you. So my position is that he loves himself more than he loves you. And out of a love for himself, he's serving you because he wants to get what he can get from you. So God puts Job's love for God into question. And then the last uh, dialogue we have with Satan in Scripture is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And you have to take note of this, that Jesus was baptized. God spoke from the heavens and said, this is my son in whom, uh, with whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested. And Satan, again, with his one and only tactic, he puts God's love into question. Uh, and that's me paraphrasing today. But it's essentially, does God really love you? Because if God really loved you, would he make your life so difficult? And then Satan offers ways to get out of the, the, the fast in the wilderness. He offers ways to kind of uh, cut to the finish line and have authority over the kingdom of earth without having to follow uh, God's plan. So what I want to present to you today is that Satan is always going to put love into question. And you can advance the slide. He's going to specifically put God's love for humanity and humanity's love for God in return into question. And that is his only tactic. Now, if you don't know anything about God's love, that's going to be a very powerful tactic. It's going to be a very f- efficient tactic. It's going to allow you to kind of jump over onto team Satan and be like, actually, I don't think God really loves me at all. And actually, I feel pretty bitter about this. And actually, I think I want to join you in hating God. That's what his desire is. That's his end goal. And now, I don't know if anyone here reads the Jesus Storybook Bible before bed, but I am a father. I read the Jesus Storybook Bible with my daughters uh, from time to time. And I want to read to you like a biblically accurate way to describe God's love that has just been presented in a a simple way so that children can understand God's love. And this is what it says in the Jesus Jesus Storybook Bible uh, in regards to God's love. It is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is a biblically accurate statement. That is what God's love is like. It is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. If that is true, if God really loves like that, then it would make sense that Satan's primary tactic should be to break apart, to blur, to uh, distort our understanding of God's love. And in his end goal is that we would hate God along with him. So this conversation ends with Satan asking to destroy Job. And God allows Job to be put to the test. And the point is, is that this request didn't surprise God because God was in control, authority, with Satan coming to that heavenly court meeting. God brought up the subject of discussion. This is nothing. Here should be a surprise. It should be a surprise to us, the reader. Wait a second. I just read something where, like, Job was described as being like a perfect man in wisdom and character. Uh, God himself said that he was blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. How is it fair? It's not fair that God would allow this to happen. And that's where the tension in Job continues. And all we can know for sure right now at this point is that while God allows uh, Satan to destroy Job, God is still in authority. God is still calling the shots because he puts limitation on Satan. This, this passage uh, in this heavenly court scene starts with God having authority over everything, including Satan. If God calls a meeting in the heavenly realms, Satan has to show up. He can't just crash a party. He can't just skip out. But then as we end the passage here in verse 12, God puts limitation onto what Satan can do. This reminds us again, God is in complete authority over everything, including Satan. And I just want to ask, does someone need to hear that today? Did you come into this gathering today, maybe not saying it with your words, but needing to know that God's in complete authority over everything? And you might be wrestling with the implications that Job is bringing to light. Like, I need to know God's in authority, but then I have some questions. I'm not sure about how this all lines up. And I thank you for engaging with that today. But who needs to know that the creator of the universe, the God that made everything, owns everything and has ultimate authority over everything is in control of what you are facing today? Who needs to hear that? This is something I I'm going to be honest, I need to be reminded of that weekly. And so as we continue the text, we know that Satan wants to test what job values does he really value god or does he love god for what he can get the answer is not going to surprise god it is not going to enlighten satan it's not going to change his heart so then we have to ask the question why do we have this account in scripture it must be for the reader to gain a better understanding of their place before god and so you can advance to the, the our last point for today and that is job's impossible response Job's response to disaster in his life in Job 1:13 through 22, is to worship God. How could he lose everything he valued, every blessing, through insane disasters and still worship God? Now, this is where that whole, like, poetry structure comes to, into play. And I'm like, this is interesting enough to share it. But in the beginning of the passage... His blessings are listed from greatest to least: his children, his valuable livestock, and then the, oh, the ox, the yoke of oxen, and the donkeys, greatest to least. But when we're going to read about how Satan is destroying his life and removing these blessings, they are uh, Job will lose from least valued to greatest. Uh, so it's just an important thing to note uh, that kind of structure doesn't just happen. It's very beautiful poetry structure. And so we first get into seeing that um, there are these different servants that will announce Job's losses. And the first is the the oxen who are plowing with the donkeys, feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck uh, down the servants with the edge of the sword. I couldn't think of a great way to illustrate this, but it's like, I feel like Satan has this kind of, a lot of power, a lot of control. And I'm going to use another illustration you probably won't know, but Bruce Almighty was like this movie where uh, this normal human being got like God power for a little while. And he just starts like answering people's prayer requests, doing like whatever he wants, where it's like, yes, you can go on a diet where you're eating only donuts and you'll lose weight. And it's like, I just feel like that's what happens in this first thing. Satan's like, oh man, like what am I going to do first? Oh, the Sabians are right there. They're passing by Job's fields. And he just (laughs) influences them. To go and to uh to to rob Job. Uh it's an easy target owning that much land. He he couldn't possibly protect it uh every everywhere at all at the same time. So the Sabians are just like basically an impulsive attack on Job's property. And and Job would have heard this and been like, okay, that's terrible. Uh, but we can we can bounce back, we can recover like from this. We're gonna be able to buy more yoke of and more donkeys. Uh Female donkeys, and then this is where, in the next part, Satan becomes more and more strategic. I think he starts to form a plan here. I don't want to credit Satan with more intelligence that he than he's due, but he is uh, he is mischievous, mischievous, and he is uh, cunning. And so I believe that he starts to try to formulate a plan, and that's where we hear. The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. Uh, a servant is saying, I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while he was yet speaking, another came and the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them down and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. All right. This is starting to look a little bit different than the Sabians. And you're like, you can read through this and it just feels like it's all happening. Boom, boom, boom. And I believe it did happen uh, all in one day. but. <clears throat> When you hear about the fire of God, like, Job should start to ask a question, and Old Testament readers should ask the question, like, isn't God in control of his fire? Like, isn't, if it's God's fire, is, did God do this? That's the kind of question uh, that Satan wants to put into Job's mind. And just to answer, if you are asking, what is the fire of God? Uh, scholars believe that it's not the same as the supernatural fire. Uh, Situations we have in scripture where there's like the pillar of fire that leads the Israelites the fire of god is like the old testament way of talking about lightning and so maybe you can um, Relate to like growing up and my mom always called thunder god playing bowling in heaven And so i'm just seeing it a little bit like that the fire of god. Oh like that's god like a huge bolt of lightning Um, And that's just the way the old testament people talked about lightning Uh, But it should be putting into question. It's like sowing that that seed of doubt how, how come god's not in control of his lightning you know and then uh, alongside that the chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid okay this took planning and it was a, stri- a strategic way that the chaldeans would attack so how did at the very same time that the sabians are like hey look at all these like valuable donkeys let's like steal them all how at the same time that that happened these Chaldeans were, like, forming this plan, breaking up into three groups, uh, attacking in a very strategic way. How did all those things happen at the same time? And this is where Job should be, sa- like, starting to have those questions and be like, wait, isn't God kind of watching over? You know, like, I- I'm taking the best care of my-, my property as possible, but how did this happen? Uh, and then now, from least to greatest, the only thing left uh, that's a blessing to him are his children. And then the report comes in. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four uh, corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And now, I just want to present a couple of considerations. Like, if Satan is trying to basically frame God, where Job will see what happened— uh, as his blessings are removed, and not be like, oh, this is the work of the devil, and actually, like, if Satan actually wants to achieve his goal, he needs to frame God. And other places in Scripture, this is not, this is just a consideration. This is not like I'm not saying this is the word of God, and this is exactly what happened. But Hosea 13:15 describes an east wind as the wind of the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel 43:2 speaks about the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. And the sound of his coming is like the sound of many waters. Uh, and so, again, there's that idea that's putting God's control over his creation into question. That, at the very least, that's true. But what if the wind came from the east? And what if it was like, that's God's wind that just killed all my family? That God just gave me this blessing, and God removed this blessing. This is a very strategic attack to frame God... And the desired result is that Job would curse God. And we know that. And what happens is the exact opposite. That's why this is, we're talking about Job's impossible response. Job's, Job arose, he tore his robes, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin. Now, this isn't this is impossible. I mean, like, if my TV broke today, I'd be like, why'd you let this happen, God? So, come on, be honest here. You're, am I the only one? Like, if something of value to you that you say is like, this is a blessing, if it was just gone today when you got home, you would be like, what's going on, God? What's the deal? So, Job's response is impossible. It's only possible if he valued and loved God above everything else. And man, we need to hear that today. Are we valuing and loving God above everything else? A friend of mine said that God like brought him into a place of being like go through your house and like discern whether you love that thing more than me. And he was like, "Okay, God." And he's like looking at his like toaster and he's like, "Do I love my toaster more than God?" No. This is a tool. And he's like, "Do I love my TV more than God?" Uh-oh, there's something going on in my heart. And he like sold his TV because he didn't want to have anything that he valued more than God. And and I just want to describe it like this. Um, The Bible talks about God uh, giving us blessings, uh, but what can happen is that you can worship the blessing more than the blesser. You can say, like, this thing is so amazing, I'm just going to make that thing my God. And you can completely forget about the one who gave it to you in the first place. And uh, uh, last year, I bought this electric weed eater And I live in the suburbs, and I know no one in the city needs electric weed eaters, but in the suburbs, it's, it's, it's all, it's like, it's a thing, okay? (laughs) And before buying that electric weed eater, I had this, uh, like, gas weed eater that was so falling apart, it was, like, held together to the stem with tape and, like, wires, and, like, every time I turned it on, I'd get, like, grease and oil all over me. And so I was, like, talking to a friend, I'm like, man, I love my electric weed eater. And, like, man, no weed is safe on my property. And it takes nothing just pop in the battery, go, and it's gone. he's like, you'll get over it. And that's the thing. That's the normal trajectory with things. You should get over it. You shouldn't, like, go down into your basement and be like, mine, my precious. Uh, You know, like, that's weird. Don't do that. But it can happen where you can value a blessing more than the blesser. And and when then those things break, when those things uh, just are removed under God's authority, His understanding of what's wise and good, we can question God. And John Stuart Holden says this: It is a great thing for a man to realize when he seems overwhelmed that he's really overshadowed. Uh, And there's different passages in scriptures talking about being in God's shadow, in the shadow of His wing, uh, and those kind of Uh, illustrations and what I want to get to with sharing that point is do you believe that God is completely present in everything that you're living and that he lovingly is overshadowing you that's the question that Job's putting into question uh, that's like the question that Job is bringing to light and answering if God is an authority over everything is he really loving and that's just boiling it down does do you believe that he lovingly overshadows you? My daughters, Abigail and Liliana, we would go for walks, and they still do this a little bit. But when they were younger, when they were only at the height of my waist, my shadow would stretch out for 15 feet, and they'd walk out in front of me and like walk within my shadow. It would always devolve into them trying to smush, my, like, like squish my head in the shadow. But for a moment, it was so beautiful. There was this picture of just. Dad is so big, so strong, so loving that I can stand in his shadow and completely be uh, overshadowed by him. And, it, and is that your image of God, just complete security in God's shadow? Now, acknowledging God's sovereignty to do what he wills with our life and worshiping him no matter what the result is the only appropriate response to suffering and to loss and that is a very hard pill to swallow but that is what Job is presenting and the reality is is like what I said it's completely impossible for any one of us here unless you love God above everything else and you truly know his love for you and that's why Satan is always going to be putting into question God's love for you and this is, the, this is the only tension we're going to relieve today based on Job 1. It's the only concrete answer that we have. That no matter what happens in your life, the only appropriate response is to worship God and say, you're in control of everything, and I love you more than everything. And we have to continue to wrestle with that through this book. We need to wrestle with it today. But I want to remind you something that truly was impossible. You can turn with me to Luke 22, 41. We're talking about Job's response being impossible. It's only possible if he loved God above all else. But this, I believe, is truly impossible. Uh, Luke twenty-two, forty-one, 41. Talking about Jesus and, and the Mount of Olives. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus, in the person of God the Son, has always been in perfect, unbroken, loving relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, I was talking with Liliana, my, my oldest daughter, about eternity past. And what she said is, if I were to think about like forever, like eternal life that the Bible talks about, it's not too hard for me to think about because I'm like, I was born and then I'm just going to keep going forever. But it, it hurts my head. It's too hard to think about eternity past. And that's the way I want to describe it. For an amount of time, it's too hard to think about and too hard to understand. Jesus, in the person of God the Son, was in perfect, unbroken fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus, uh, on earth, uh, fully human and fully God, when he went towards the cross, we know that the only thing he had of any value was his clothing. Because what he truly valued was what he gave up for you and me. Jesus, God the Son, experienced perfect, unbroken relationship. And you can't, we cannot understand that in the first place. Because who has a perfect, loving relationship with someone? Nobody. We all fight. We all have to reconcile. We're all selfish. We don't know what that relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit looks like. It was perfect. And we, it's too hard to think about that relationship going on for eternity past. But Jesus gave that up for you and me. That was truly impossible. And when he did that, two things broke. Uh, and that's not an extensive list, but two things I want to look at today. One was his fellowship with God the Father uh, and the Holy Spirit. And this was a temporary breaking of that perfect fellowship so that you wouldn't have to experience an eternity of broken relationship from your uh, being separated from your Creator. So he experienced a temporary loss so that you could experience eternal restoration. The next thing that broke is Satan's greatest tactic. His non-committal accusations in the form of a question, does God really love you? That lie has been broken for 2,023 years. And so we know that in Romans 5, 5, 8, you can forward the slide. God showed his love for us. God showed his love for you. That while we were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. When you were so far away from God that you weren't even thinking about him, he was already forming a plan to restore you into relationship with himself. And that meant that God, the son, Jesus, would have to have his relationship broken. Temporarily. And that was the thing of greatest value. And out of love, God set that plan into motion for you. And so today, if Satan puts God's love into question, it is just so lazy and sloppy. It is just lazy and sloppy because that lie has been refuted. It is clear in Scripture that God loves you to the point of dying for you uh, in Jesus, God the Son, on the cross. So the only tactic that Satan really has now is to keep you away from God's word. Be like, don't read that. I mean, boring. it's boring. It's irrelevant for us today. It's to keep you away from places where people will remind you of God's love and say, hey, you're believing a lie about God's love for you and say, let me show you what God truly says in scripture. We just went through this sermon series. I believe it's called Instruments, oh no, Ingredients for Change. And we talked about the value of church, city group, change group. Those are all places that Satan will want to keep you away from. Because he's like, I can't lie anymore about whether or not God loves them. So I can just keep them away from being reminded of God's love. The most important thing to know as as we close today is that suffering is a basic human experience. And it's unavoidable. And it has nothing to do with God's love for you. And I was talking to Brian Stegner, and I was like, "How do I illustrate this? Suffering is a basic human ex- uh, human experience." And he thought for a second, and he said, "Everyone poops," and that is a Japanese child book uh, that was translated in English in the 90s. And I somehow was like protected from it in my upbringing. I never had that book, so I had to go research it. And it's like full on like everyone poops like fish poop, birds do too, and so do bugs. And like, I was like, why does this book exist? And then, <clears throat> what it gets to is, like I, I guess, this is my own assumption, but like, kids in Japan were having a lot of anxiety about like, what was happening to their bodies, I guess. But it's, it ends with saying, like, everyone eats, and therefore everyone poops. And so this, that's the illustration that Brian helped me bring up today. I'm giving him full credit. But suffering is a basic human experience. If you're breathing today, you are going to experience suffering at some point in your life, or maybe you're experiencing it right now. It's completely unavoidable. And contrary to the Invictus poem, you are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. You cannot hedge yourself from suffering. You can only choose the object of your worship. And my question for you today is, in Christ, you have the opportunity to know what love really is. And you know, you can know what it is to value God above everything else as the only one worthy of being valued in that position. And now, we're in downtown Montreal. A lot of us are, a lot of you, I'm not gonna say me, but are here for education. Uh, Maybe you'll come across a relationship along the way. Uh, Maybe you're looking forward to that future job, uh, that future home, that future family. All those things are good. And valuable things, they're blessings when you receive them. But if they take the place of being the most valued thing in your life, when you lose that, you will curse God. Because you'll say, Why did you take away the thing that was most valued to me? When He's standing right there and saying, I want to be the most valuable thing to you. I've done everything so we can have a relationship. I love you. So today when we're faced with with, with loss. You cannot believe the lie of Satan that God does not love you because that lie has been proven wrong. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so today your, your invitation is to make God your greatest treasure, to value God above everything else that you have. And that's where we look at Job's response. It will forever be impossible unless God was the only thing he valued above everything else. And just one last point of reflection. When we're going to skim through Job, really, over eight weeks. Job 9 talks about taking God to court. And I think that's a really important thing to take note of in this first sermon, is that Montreal would really like to take God to court and be like, you're in the wrong, we're in the right, let's forget about you forever. And Job 9 says, take God to court, And you're going to lose a 1,000 times out of a 1,000 times. And I just want to invite you to wrestle with that. If you think God is in the wrong, what Job is saying is you're in the wrong. But the important thing to take note of is not to be like, well, that sucks, and I don't like that. But to see here in Job and and through Scripture, what, what it brings to light is that when you're experiencing loss, God is with you. He's in complete, sovereign control over everything you're experiencing. And he loves you. He's lovingly overshadowing you. And, that, and if that's true, if that's really true, you can live through any situation that you face. Even if it feels like the end of the world, like nine-year-old me, end of the world, bumper cars, I lost that whole thing, it's over. I did say I wasn't going to tokenize suffering. So that's my illustration for the day. But if you are really suffering, if you really feel like it's the end of the world, do you believe that God's lovingly overshadowing you? And can you worship God in the midst of that? Well, Job 1 says you can if you value God above everything else. And the reality is, is that is possible. That is possible only in Christ because Jesus, God the Son, gave up that perfect relationship with God allowed to ha- himself to experience the weight of the sin of the world coming on him, breaking that relationship so you could have a restored relationship with God so you could really know God loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray above all else that we would know that you love us. And if there's someone here today who came in believing Satan's lie, that God does not love us, I rebuke that lie of the enemy in the name of Jesus. God, I just want to experience daily valuing, valuing you above everything else. And I pray that that would be our response. To go through our belongings and say, do I love this thing more than my creator and my savior and my Lord? I pray, God, that you would be our treasure And that we could experience worshiping you in the midst of loss. And God, I pray that it would be your grace to us that we don't experience loss to the extent of Job. But God, I pray that in whatever level of loss, suffering that we do experience, we would make it all about you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.